Chapter 25 of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter 25 The Wedding Day. The practical details Cordelia and Jerry had settled before that last goodnight kiss which would ever part them were these. To escape those confounded news hounds, they would that night pack their trunks with their honeymoon equipment, and at an unwatchful slumbrous hour after midnight, one of Jerry's cars would call for the trunks and transport them out to his Aunt Janet's. Their more immediate and intimate necessities, each would pack into a bag, and then, if the whim should strike them on the road not to go to his aunt's for a day or two, they would be equipped to slip off to wherever fancy led them. These two bags they would carry with them in their own car on the morrow. But these bags would not be in their car when they drove down to the city hall in the morning to secure a license. Bags in a waiting car, plus two persons emerging from the license bureau, might give their whole show away if one of those damned reporters should be hanging around. But merely getting a license was not in their case a suspicious circumstance. A license was good for any period. It was a marriage kept in storage until needed. Most couples, as a matter of convenience, secured their licenses several days in advance of the day of their intended use. And there was a further circumstance that would avert suspicion from Cordelia and Jerry. Their marriage had publicly been set for the 15th of November, and if they were just moderately careful, no one would suspect a change of date until all was over. Jerry would, in the early morning, bring his bag over to the Park Avenue apartment and leave it there. They would then drive down and, in an unsuspicious manner, get their license. Then they would return uptown and quickly get the two bags and shoot away. Yes, that would certainly be putting it over on the newspapers. And as it was planned, so it was done. At 10 o'clock the following morning, it was the morning of Halloween, by the way. They walked out of City Hall, the license in Jerry's inner pocket, and unhurriedly crossed to Jerry's roadster parked near their Hall of Records. No one had seemed to notice them. The thing had worked. But a few things had happened, and more now began to happen, of which they were unaware. For instance, they were both totally unaware that for many days past, certain apparently stolid gentlemen with obvious manner of uninterest in them had been watching every move they made. Two of these gentlemen had noted and followed up the post-midnight movement of trunks. And another pair of these gentlemen had observed the entrance of Jerry's suitcase into Cordelia's apartment house. These two items, as had every other item of action, were duly reported over the wire to Mr. Franklin. And even while Cordelia and Jerry, rejoicing inwardly at the success of their strategy, were stepping into their car beside the Hall of Records, someone in the office of the license clerk 
stimulated to watchfulness and obliging promptness by a gratifying fee, was duly reporting the issuance of the license to Mr. Franklin's office. Trunks sent secretly to the country, plus a traveling bag, plus a marriage license, was not a difficult problem in addition and deduction for Mr. Franklin. He had kept to his policy, difficult though restraint had been, of waiting for something to happen, something that would proceed from outside himself that would not involve him. But something had not happened. He now must make something happen. He acted with the swift exactness of a general who had been waiting zero hour. Everything had been thought out, prepared for. Just one minute after the last of these reports had come in over the telephone, Mr. Franklin had rolling meadows on the wire and was talking to Gladys. His voice was sharp, peremptory. Miss Marlowe and Mr. Plimpton are planning to slip away and be married today. We've... What? gasped Gladys. And you promised to stop. Don't interrupt. We've got to act quick. Now get everything I tell you and get it all straight. First of all, get Miss Marlowe's apartment on the wire and ask her to come out to see you at once. Make it important. You've got to see her at once, within the hour. Don't give any hint that you suspect what they're going to do. They are planning to spend their honeymoon out at Mr. Plimpson's aunt's place. That's not far from you. They probably intend to be married quietly somewhere out in that part of the country. So coming to see you will not seem to them much out of their way. It won't seem to them any real delay, and particularly they'll not object since they can pretend to you that they're just out for a drive or a weekend visit. And if you make seeing Miss Marlowe a most pressing matter, they'll not have stopped to be married before they arrive. Make it important, most important, and they'll be sure to come. But what reason can I give Cordelia? A reason that will bring her here? Tell her something has suddenly come up about Francois. Something you simply must see her about. Not an hour's delay. Something you can't tell her over the wire. Francois, she likes him. That will bring her. All right. I understand all that. When they come, have them shown directly into the library. It's away from the rest of the house, and they won't notice anything that's happening while they wait. The library. It's important. You'll remember that? The library. I'll remember. Anything else? Yes, as soon as you've talked to Miss Marlowe, get that Mrs. Jackie Thorndyke on the wire. Use whatever excuse you think will get her over, but get her over, and at once. I'm sure I can get her, but what for? No time now to tell you. May never tell you, for we may not use her. Keep yourself out of sight on some excuse till I come and then leave things to me as your attorney. I'll be there not many minutes behind Miss Marlowe and Mr. Plimpton, and I'll probably bring Mrs. Marlowe with me. She won't know why she's there any more than Mrs. Thorndyke, and they may never know. They're just for use in an emergency, and let's hope there'll be no emergency. 
Now, remember everything I've said and don't waste a second. That's all till I see you. Goodbye. One moment. Don't hang up, cried Gladys. There's something you'd perhaps better know. Mitchell will be here. This is Halloween or his birthday or something, and he promised to spend the day with Francois. Would rather Mitchell wasn't going to be there, but I don't see how it can be helped. And I guess his being there won't make any difference. I don't look for trouble. Goodbye. The next minute, Franklin was talking to Mrs. Marlowe. Cordelia and Jerry were then not more than a mile on their uptown journey. Good morning, Mrs. Marlowe, he said in the gracious, respectful voice she liked so much. By the way, there's just been an unexpected development in your business affair. Some of your stocks, nothing unpleasant, but extremely important that I should consult you at once. And I'd rather, if you can arrange it, that Miss Marlowe did not at present know of our interview. I can get in my car and drive straight up. If all this suits you, I wonder if you could arrange so that there will not be a minute's unnecessary delay. I shall be glad to see you, said the pleased Mrs. Marlowe. Come right up. No, no, just a moment while I think. Her roving eyes had caught Cordelia's bag, and that reminded her that Cordelia would soon be back. My daughter will be leaving the house for the day in perhaps a quarter of an hour. If you are in a hurry and yet wish to avoid her, you might drive up and wait inside of the entrance of the house. There may be a car down in front. The car shall be going in. If the car is still there, you can watch it, and as soon as my daughter goes down and drives away, you may come right up. Excellent. I'll do that. Oh, by the way, I wonder if you'd be willing to talk business in my car? It's a closed car and very comfortable. I have a frightful headache this morning, and I was thinking I'd like to get out into the air. We can talk as we drive. I've come to my own conclusions regarding your business, and I'm leaving in the office instructions based on those conclusions. If, after our talk, you wish a different course pursued, we can stop anywhere, and I can telephone in a new set of instructions. If such a plan suits you, he ended persuasively, we might run into the country a bit, and for me it would turn business into an hour or two of holiday. The plan did suit Mrs. Marlowe, suited her very much indeed, and she said so. It had been a dismal, nerve-exhausting prospect, this sitting alone in the apartment while her daughter was off somewhere, going through the great climax of marriage. The drive would be a most welcome relief. And so, hardly five minutes behind Cordelia and Jerry, Mr. Franklin's limousine followed uptown. When Cordelia and Jerry appeared at the apartment, Mrs. Marlowe was careful not to mention Mr. Franklin's name, but she reported that Gladys Norworth had just called up twice and had left an urgent message that Cordelia should ring her up the moment she came in. It was of the very greatest importance. 
Cordelia, though restless to be away, complied with the request, and over the wire Gladys repeated what Franklin had ordered her to say concerning Francois. With Cordelia, nothing else could have been so effective. She liked Francois for himself. And then his small figure was behind, most significantly behind, all the larger things that had recently happened in her life. This call, as she reasoned, would not have come if this sudden development concerning Francois did not also concern her. She asked Gladys to hold the wire, muffled the mouthpiece with her palm, and turned toward Jerry. What each said was in substance just what Franklin judged would be their reactions. It's Gladys, Jerry. She says something has happened to Francois, and she asked me to come at once. If you don't mind, I'd like very much to stop by. I'd like it very much, Jerry. It won't take long, and it's really not much out of our direction. Just as you like, Cordy. And they won't guess what we're up to. We're off for the usual weekend. That will explain our bags if they happen to notice them. Five minutes later, they were headed for Queensborough Bridge, fenced to streak across Long Island like a domesticized meteor in Jerry's imported Hispano-Souza car with its airplane motor. Jerry especially chuckling with delight over the manner in which he had outwitted the news hounds. Neither had an idea that, only a few minutes behind them, drove Mr. Franklin and Mrs. Marlowe the latter giving her approval to his ideas concerning those purely hypothetical stocks upon whose income she had been supporting her family these many months. And since Mrs. Marlowe was content with his suggestions, she was quite content to drive on and have a bit of the crisp Long Island air. And neither Jerry nor Cordelia had an idea as yet that after all they had not succeeded in that wonderfully clever stratagem for eluding the reporters, that those three closed cars behind, which seemed to be holding their own direction, were each loaded with determined newspaper men. Wise though both of them were in most worldly matters, Jerry and Cordelia were not fully acquainted with one sober fact of modern life, that when newspaper men do not wish to be eluded, Newspaper men usually are not eluded. They knew their marriage was an important event, but they did not realize that the marriage of Cordelia Marlowe and Jerry Plimpton could no more escape the newspapers than that of England's Princess Mary to... to... the gentleman's name for the moment escapes the present writer, when its turn came to fascinate the public's romantic minds some four or five months later. As they stepped from Jerry's racer in front of Gladys's house, Francois came darting out from the spruce, shouting, Mother Cordelia! She kissed him and hugged him in great relief. She had feared that Gladys's vague and peremptory message might have meant that the boy was critically ill. As she released him and straightened up to continue into the house, she heard a voice call, Better come to me now, Francois. And she then saw Mitchell standing aloof a dozen yards away.
He was rather pale, but was otherwise as composed as usual, and he bowed slightly. She bowed formally in return, remembering the afternoon he had abducted her in a taxicab and the disdain with which he had lashed her. Head held proudly high, she led the way up the steps and to the door. When Gladys's butler admitted Cordelia and Jerry, he said that Gladys was busy with a telephone call and that they were pleased to wait in the library where she would presently come, and to it he led the way and there left them. The library was at the side of the house, farthest away from the main entrance, the driveway, and the garage, and all the ground floor rooms in most common use. It had that apartness, that remoteness, which are ideal for a library, having been planned by an architect who had provided for a greater fondness for books and bookly quiet than had ever been shown by the dead Mr. Norworth and his wife or by their daughter. The architect had also provided a literary retreat even more quiet, for adjoining the library, with a door into the library and another door opening into a private corridor, was that dream of the luxurious bibliophile, a soundproof study. Several minutes passed. Cordelia remarked to Jerry that Gladys must be having one of those weekend telephone visits. She was feeling restless, apprehensive, but she tried not to show this to Jerry. Then the butler reappeared. Several gentlemen from the newspaper are here, he announced. They say they would very much like to see you. Both Cordelia and Jerry had sprung up, and both had gasped, Reporters? It was Jerry who answered, and his answer was emphatic. You may say to the newspaper gentlemen that we would very much not to see them. Very well, sir. They said I was also to say to you, if you refuse to see them, that they know you are going to be married today, and that they simply must have the news. I was to say to you that it would be very much pleasanter for you and for them if you would consent to seeing them and consent to their being present at the ceremony. Otherwise, they'd have to tell them all to go to hell, exploded Jerry. Tell them it's none of their damn business. Yes, sir. Very well, sir. As the butler made his exit, Cordelia and Jerry stared at each other in dismay. Their inspired plan for non-publicity had come to... to... this. They were incoherent in the exasperation of their suddenly foiled desire. And before coherence could be regained, the butler was back once more. "'Miss Norworth wishes to see Miss Marlowe in the study,' he said." and crossing the library, he opened the heavy door to the study, and after she had passed in, he closed it behind her. The study was empty. Strange how many delays Gladys was having this morning, Cordelia thought, as she sat down. A few moments passed. Then the door, which opened from the private corridor, softly opened and as softly closed. Cordelia rose in sudden alarm as she saw that the person who had joined her was not Gladys. "'Mr. Franklin?' she exclaimed. 
Good morning, Miss Marlowe, he said pleasantly. I happen to be out here seeing my client, Miss Norworth, on a matter of business. She will be detained a few minutes more. While you wait, if you don't mind, I'd like to have a little chat with you. Won't you please be seated? For the first time in his presence, Cordelia felt fear and dislike of this polished man. But her pride concealed both. I'd prefer not to talk with you just at present, she said formally. I'll wait for Miss Norworth in the library. She moved toward the library door. With a quick step, he intercepted her. Perhaps you will be willing to talk when you know what I wish to talk about, he said, still in his pleasant manner, about our business relations. I really have not yet answered your letter terminating our connections. I wish to answer it now. I have something of very great importance to say, and it should be said immediately. His voice had not altered its agreeable quality, but for her it had the quality of command. Very well, but please make what you say brief. I hope that you will help me make it brief. With your permission, I shall tell Mr. Plimpton I am with you. He knows I am your attorney, so he can check Miss Norworth if she comes through the library. I'm sure we won't wish Miss Norworth to overhear any part of our business talk. She was instantly certain that he was in the study by arrangement with Gladys. But she assented with a nod. He opened the library door, greeted Jerry, then said, Miss Norworth seems to be delayed. Miss Marlowe and I wish to talk over a little matter of business. It will only require a few moments. And if Miss Norworth comes through the library, will you please detain her until we have finished? Jerry thought this appearance of Franklin somewhat odd, but he knew of Franklin's professional relation to both Gladys and Cordelia, and he promised. Franklin closed the door and recrossed toward Cordelia, his face still smiling. And now, since we are to have our talk, won't you please be seated? I promised to help you make this brief, and I shall make it so brief that we will not need to sit down. She felt that she had herself well in hand. She knew she was cool, dignified, distant, distinctly superior. To get to our business, for some time I have felt that perhaps I should not have accepted the money which I had from you during the course of our recent business relations. I prefer not to go into the reasons behind this feeling. It will be sufficient to say that for some time I have had the determination to repay you every dollar of the sums received. You know that after my marriage I shall have ample funds entirely my own. Since the reporters know it, you doubtless also know that I am to be married today. That knowledge should be a guarantee to you that you will receive payment in full within the next few days. I believe this closes the subject of all the business there is to be discussed between us. There, she had said it, and said it extremely well. That can hardly close the business, he returned. For that is not at all the subject I got you here to discuss. I do not know of any other subject. Surely you do. 
something of far more importance than money or its return. You will recall that I once told you I loved you and asked you to marry me. I prefer not to reopen that subject, she said haughtingly. At that time you said no, he continued. I then told you that I should hope on, that I should never give you up. I have not given you up. My real business is this, to tell you again that I love you and to ask you again to marry me. Her gaze was a scorching flame. You get me here with you by a trick to tell me that on my wedding day? Whatever had been blazing within him, ravening at his heart, he had up to this moment maintained a surface of poise and pleasant-mannered self-restraint. But now there was an instantaneous change. His face, his manner, his words were what his heart was, and his heart was crazy in its love for Cordelia. He made a quick stride and gripped her upper arms. Cordelia, you're going to marry me, not that man waiting in the library, he cried, his voice shaking with his passion. He hasn't love to give you, Cordelia. He has only money. I have love, and I'll get you all the money you'll ever want. I love you, Cordelia. I love you. Don't you see how I love you? God, how I love you. And I always will love you. Always. During the first moment of the rush of his mad words, Cordelia was so stunned and horrified by the sudden outburst that she was powerless to move or speak. Let me go. Let me go. She now gasped and struggled to tear herself free from those clinging hands. She got one arm loose and with all her young strength drove a fist into those lips, spilling their abominable and abominated love. You beast, you, she cried. You beast to dare to talk like that to me. Let go my other arm. He loosed his clutch. Gasping, she glared at him for the supreme insult he had dared put upon her. He had not, in his serious moments, ever believed that any such mad avowal of love would avail to win her. But passion had seized him and swept him for a minute out of his mind's control. But now, once more, by a great effort, his mind was master of his passions. Stand out of my way, she cried imperiously. I've had enough of this. He made no move to obey. I love you, he said, his voice now quiet. But if you will not marry me for love, there is still another reason why you will marry me. The strange confidence with which he spoke, the absurdity, the utter impossibility of what he said, were such as to draw from her a question. What reason is that? she demanded. He was now on safe ground. He knew just how to handle people when he finally had them in a position from which they could not extricate themselves. He was calm, though exultant within, because he knew that she was going to accept him, 
that in just a few minutes, she was going to be his fiance, not Jerry Plimpton's. Because though you may not love me, you love what the world thinks of you, he said. Therefore, you'd much rather marry me than allow me to tell the world what I know about you. Tell what you know about me, she exclaimed, not yet seeing in what direction he was leading her. Yes, tell what I know and all I know. There's your choice and it's simple. Either marry me or I tell. But what is there to tell? Plenty. That you're a blackmailer. That you're an adventuress. That you and your family have been making a social show entirely on blackmail money. Even in her dumbfounded wrath, she had a sense that these same things had been said to her before. By whom? Oh, yes, by Mitchell. It will be a very nice story, he continued. The great Cordelia Marlowe. Cordelia the Magnificent, I believe they sometimes call you. Keeping up her fine front by blackmailing her friends. Yes, a very nice story indeed. And I don't have to ask the world to take my unsupported word. I have documents. Your signatures, you know? Now, don't you see that your best chance for a happy married life is with me? Only slowly had she got the full significance of what he had been saying and of what that clearly implied concerning the whole of their relationship. The thing stupefied her with its horror. So... All this while you've been lying to me, leading me into a trap? Exactly, if you wish to put it in unpleasant language. And you trapped me so that you could blackmail me into marrying you? Exactly, though I had hoped you would marry me without my being driven to use unpleasant pressure. She stared at him, speechless. The thing seemed to her incredible. To think, she breathed slowly, to think that any man in all the world could do such a thing. A man has done it, he said in his even confident tone, and you are going to marry that man. Her stunned vitality returned to her with a dizzying rush, her glance was a blaze of contemptuous fury. Mary, you, you, never, never. Oh, yes, you will. His voice was still confident. When you say no, you're forgetting the alternative I mentioned. If you don't marry me, I'll tell the world all about you. Tell, go on and tell she cried in her furious defiance. To show you how much I care for your threat, I'll tell the world myself, tell it everything. Looking at her trembling figure, he realized that she would indeed tell. And he realized, utterly unbelievable, though the thing had seemed to him since the beginning, he realized definitely 
that he had lost, that his careful, patient plan had failed. I'll tell everything, she blazed on, and tell it now, and I shall begin by going right in and telling Mr. Plimpton, first of all, and I'll tell the world all about you, that you are a blackmailer, a swindling, crooked lawyer who deserves disbarment and prison. He again caught her arm in a fierce grip. She did not speak to him again, not even to order him to remove his hand, but stood gazing at him with her terrible contempt. His love for Cordelia had been and still was a wild love akin to the love of those men who refused to kill the women they love. This impulse to kill was now upon him. And adding to this impulse, doubling its strength, was the impulse of self-preservation. By her last words, she had become a menace to his fortune, his career, his very life. The gratification of the two impulses required the same action. She must be killed if he could possibly kill her, but not physically. He took his hand from her arm and stepped aside. Go on in and tell, he said quietly. She swiftly crossed the study, with him following, and threw open the library door. Jerry, she cried, Jerry, she broke off, somewhat taken aback. For instead of the solitary Jerry that she expected, waiting in the library were Jerry, Gladys, Esther, and Mitchell. End of chapter 25 Read by Book Bard.